The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Summer Strut 2018 edition. This is, uh, as our listeners know, a unique format. Um, without music, life would be a mistake. Without Summer Strut, let's face it, we'd be just another podcast. This episode is a giant thank you letter to our fans who crowdsource an insanely entertaining and eclectic playlist. So I guess it's a thank you letter from them as well. I think that's a, a perfect equilibrium right there. Uh, before we strut, though, we do consult with Billboardologist and Zeitgeist conjurer Chris Malamphy, creator <laughs> and host of the Hit Parade podcast, which is itself a hit and just a wonderful gem of uh uh, audio gift to mankind. Let me introduce my co-panelists, of course, Julia Turner, who is the editor of Slate. Hey, Julia. Hello. And uh, Dana Stevens, the film critic of Slate. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steven. Julia, it's come to our attention that maybe new listeners sometimes uh, arrive at our show thanks to the summer strut episode. So maybe maybe walk us through what it is exactly. Okay. So some years ago, eight years ago, seven years ago, uh, I lamented on the podcast that I needed new music, that I was sick of all my music. I was walking to work. It was summertime and I wanted summer strut music, the kind of music that has like a good lanky, lopy beat, a propulsive sensibility and is like badass and fun that would make me feel like I was going to conquer the world as I strutted through New York on the way to work. And our fans began to send in suggestions, basically unsolicited. And so we began this annual tradition of summoning summer strut songs, building a massive playlist uh, with the help of our fans, and then kind of going through it, listening to this cornucopia of fun songs, old and new, uh, aggressive and shouty and and uh, cool as ice lopey, and picking our faves and putting together a, a great summer playlist every year. But before we get into our selections from our uh, listener suggestions, we do ask you, Chris, to run us through the official Song of Summer race so we have a baseline and understand what mm -hmm. the top of the pops consider to be the songs of this summer, summer 2018. So who are the contenders so far this year? Song of Summer this year, it, it will probably involve one of two people. Uh, it will involve either Drake, yes, Drake, again, or it will involve Cardi B, who has been sort of the... Um, secret sauce of the last 12 months. Um, she uh, has come in and out of the top 40 and even the top 10 on multiple records. Uh, and as of right now, when we're recording this, according to Billboard, just going by the data, she currently has the song of the summer, although it only snuck into the number one spot on that list a couple of weeks ago and it is probably quite tenuous it's not as locked down as it was this time last year i remember this time last year when we did this in mid-july i said it's despacito by luis fonsi and daddy yankee with justin bieber that is a lock you can take it to the bank and i was proved right mostly because the thing had just been sitting there for number one for weeks and weeks we don't have that clear a winner this year uh but currently a record that went to number one on the hot 100 about three weeks ago and has cumulatively uh, amassed the most, I guess you could say, points since Memorial Day is this song by Cardi B called I Like It, featuring uh, two uh, mostly Spanish-speaking Latin singer-rappers, uh, a Puerto Rican named Bad Bunny and a Colombian named J Balvin. Uh, and what's interesting, as I wrote about when the song went to number one for my Why Is This Song Number One series, is that I like it right from the jump. You, It may sound familiar to you if you have even a passing familiarity with really big, famous Latin records. You don't have to be an expert in Latin music to know this. There's an old record from the 60s, a kind of boogaloo, New Yorican soul record called I Like It Like That, which has been a hit more than once. Uh, it was a hit in the 90s uh, for a, a group that called themselves uh, the Blackout All-Stars. Uh, and that thing was a big radio hit. And basically, Cardi B has taken it back from a couple, 40 years ago and then again 20 years ago, and grafted on two guys who ironically make the song more Spanish-speaking. Bad Bunny and J Balvin are mostly singing and rapping in Spanish, uh, whereas the original record back in 1967 uh, was um, 
basically mostly all in English. That's sort of the prime candidate right now, but like I said, it, it uh, the perch is a little tenuous. There's this other record that's been lodged in the top five for most of the last month by Maroon 5 featuring Cardi B called Girls Like You. It mostly sounds like your standard generic Maroon 5 pop rock. It's quite catchy. The first time you hear it, it feels familiar. The third time you hear it, you feel like you probably don't need to hear it again. And then Cardi B kind of parachutes in in the middle of the record to throw in this fairly incongruous rap in the middle. And the only reason to to note it is it's been in the top five for, you know, about a month and a half, probably because of Cardi B, uh, who has, you know, appeared on so many records, uh, including, you know, Bruno Mars's hit uh, Finesse a few months ago. She's just kind of the, the secret spice that's been added to a lot of pop hits lately. Man, that is uh, generic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the, the the Maroon Five record is pretty generic. I mean, I'm I'm no no shade. Like the, the Maroon Five has made catchy songs in its life, but that one doesn't feel like it has particular oomph. Chris, uh, I've inverted my younger self. I now know nothing and like everything. Um, <laughs> and but what I need as the parent of a 15 year old and a 12 year old is a two sentence explainer on Cardi B. For, huh. I, I, it, pretend that I'm dialing in from planet old. I'm a space alien from planet old. Imagine if I you just, will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. <laughs> the streaming era has been very good for hip hop and hip hop is very good to men. And what makes Cardi B exceptional and remarkable is that she has all the aggression and virality of a male rapper. Um, but she's, you know... <laughs> not only a woman, but sort of embracing her womanhood in a very overt fashion in her choice of lyrics, in her presentation, in her, you know, combination of aggression and um, a vulnerability, even occasionally. She's very aggressive, but then there have been records, uh, uh, like a record she put out that she performed on Saturday Night Live when she revealed her pregnancy a couple months ago called uh, Be Careful. Um, so she's capable of being both vulnerable and extremely aggressive. The record that broke her last fall, Bodak Yellow, is extremely aggressive. Um, Cardi B seems to have figured out a different code for female rap in an era that has not, frankly, been terribly hospitable to female artists in general, whether that's, say, Taylor Swift or, you know, uh, any female R&B artist or, or even rapper prior to Cardi B. But Cardi B seems to have broken the code. All right. What other contenders do we have? Um, so... We have to talk about Drake. Drake dropped an album. Do we? Yes. I am afraid we do. <laughs> He's so <laughs> omnipresent. Look, if guys, I have to write about yet a third Drake song this week. So if I got to write about it, we got to talk about okay, it. Okay, okay. So there. let me just make this as quick as possible. Drake's album Scorpion, which came out about a month ago, is like flattening all the streaming records, which is basically what Drake does anytime he releases something new. It's like there's a previous streaming record. It is usually set by Drake and then Drake himself beats it. Um He's had three number one hits this year, one in the winter uh, called God's Plan, which pretty much everybody underestimated. Everybody thought, oh, he's just marking time until he's ready to release an album. And it wound up spending 10 weeks at number one. He then immediately ejected himself from number one with a, a much more up-tempo record, a bouncy record, which has lasted into the summer. You could call it the front half of summer uh, record for him called Nice For What, uh, which you it may be familiar to you if you listen to it. It's the one that rides a sample of the old Lauren Hill song X Factor from the late 90s. The uh, voice you heard there was uh, Bounce Queen, Big Frida, uh, who is kind of like a, I don't know, you could call it a spirit animal on that record. He's, he's completely channeling that. 
I mean, it does shed light on how some people felt about sampling when it first emerged in mm-hmm. hip hop. Like to me, all the excavation of those great hidden little brass lines or other bits and pieces that got put into the songs of my youth were delightful discoveries and excavations. But if you actually grew up knowing and loving those songs, there is something that feels a little bit like you're just going to like that Lauren Hill song is his own hit song. Like what do you, that's not like a, that's not like a crate diving <laughs> find. That was just like one of the best songs, um, which sort of sheds a different light on that sort of sense of curation that you think about with sampling. His follow-up, it's, it, I'm not even sure it was the official follow-up, but it became the follow-up for viral reasons as a song that is now number one. It's been number one for two weeks and it, will probably be number one the rest of the summer and it could probably steal the title from Cardi B if it hangs in long enough called In My Feelings. And it's now the subject of a a viral meme called either the In My Feelings Challenge, the Do the Shiggy Challenge, or the Kiki Challenge. It's called the Do the Shiggy because an Instagram comedian named Shiggy put a video online maybe three or four weeks ago dance of himself dancing just outside of a car to in my feelings and it went crazy viral and basically everybody is now streaming and downloading the song just so they can make their own video it's basically what harlem shake was to i don't know five six years ago um in my feelings has suddenly emerged as one of those and it's it's similarly it's almost like a slightly more minor key version of what nice for what is it's also kind of bounce indebted but just a little more romantic and lilting and wafty I know you special girl cause I know too many Risha, do you love me? Are you riding? Say you never ever leave from beside me Cause I want you and I need So there you go, that's the world of Drake I want to ask you about Taylor Swift and I promise I'm not trying to pick a fight with Steve but uh, she's not a presence in the Song of Summer conversation particularly, right? And she really hasn't been, I mean she, she whatever her songwriting charms and we can and have debated them uh, she doesn't necessarily do the party jam exactly. She does more are the driving in the car anthem, not the hearing it out the car window anthem. Mm-hmm. But are I you did... ripping? Are you ripping on my tete? All right, all right. All right. <laughs> Is she like on the charts? Does anybody care about this album? Like, what's going on? Okay, here's the funny part. If we were having this conversation two months ago, I would have said, "Boy, Taylor really fell off." you know, in terms of chart performance. You wouldn't know it based on looking at the Hot 100 right now, but a record that is doing extremely well at radio and is only now approaching the top 10 because it's only streaming kind of okay and streaming now dominates the charts is her song Delicate. Delicate is not threatening for Song of the Summer by any means. It's not a strong enough airplay record yet. It's not a, it's certainly not a strong enough streaming record, but uh, I feel a little vindicated. When I heard Reputation last fall, immediately I said, Delicate's the best song on the record. I believe on pop songs right now, it's either number two or number one, which is the the, the Billboard chart that narrows everything down to just radio stations that play top 40 music. On the all-genre chart, it's in the top 10. So it is really catching on at radio. But Taylor, Taylor's in a funny place right now, more popular than she's ever been with her fans, selling out these, this tour is doing better, I think, than any tour she's ever had. The album did well, not as well as 1989, but radio has cooled on her on a lot of these tracks, and they are m- much more song by song, wait and see. They don't automatically add her the way they would have one album ago. Well, one other woman, I mean, you you said that the charts haven't been particularly hospitable to women, and that's part of what's exciting about Cardi B's rise, but there are a couple Dark Horse Song of Summer contenders, including one from previ- previous strut list faves, Marin Morris. Can we talk about The Middle? Yeah, so The Middle's a funny record because Marin Morris is technically not the lead artist on it. The lead artist is a DJ who scored, who's quietly scored several hits over the years called Zed, Z-E-D-D. Um, he is the you know nominal lead artist and the actual producer of this record. Although if you watch uh, a uh, segment that the New York Times did about the making of this record, which I think we should link to from the show page, you'll see that like so many modern hits, uh, it took an army to make this hit um the song is called the middle um it's by zed with uh, maren morris and gray
Marin Morris is absolutely the star of this record. Marin Morris comes from the world of country, um, and she is country as it is now defined in the post Taylor, post Casey Musgraves era, where it's country, but it's not afraid of electronic beats. Marin Morris's album, you know, with hits like '80s Mercedes already sounded like sort of 80s techno pop twanged up just ever so slightly or maybe twangy songs turned into synth pop you take your pick and the middle is this not even pretending to be country total pop record where Marin Morris was brought in and if you watch the the New York Times segment about the making of it they weren't even sure who was going to sing the record and it was only when they gave Marin Morris a try that they realized that her vocal was the best and uh it's been a, a huge radio hit for the last two, three months, actually. It feels like there's a less decisive song this year than last year with Despacito or a bunch of years ago with Call Me Maybe. It doesn't feel like there's just one song that's making everyone fall down and 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 rise with this is itness. So I don't know. I'm I'm enjoying this uh, tour. The Marin Morris song I feel like is engineered for me to love it, and I don't. I feel like it's a little bit in the middle. Like it it sounds like pop and I like Marin's voice, but I, I haven't been cranking it up. I mean, I have to say that none of the of the shortlist you sent us, Chris, not one of them to me felt like something that, you know, if it came on as you were waiting to buy a Coke at a beach shack or whatever the summary right. activity was, that that would feel like, oh, here we are. It's 2018 and I'll never forget this song in this moment. None of them <laughs> felt that way to me. <laughs> Why is that so funny? I just like that as the standard. That's a really good standard. I mean, call mm-hmm. me maybe, right? I don't know what summer that was, but 2012. it clearly 2012. It clearly was something that, you know. Eight-year-olds were dancing to in kiddie parks and people were dancing to in clubs or playing in cars. And some people got really sick of it because it was so annoying, but it was catchy and it was everywhere. Maybe there's something about 2018 that we don't want any of it to imprint on our long-term memory. (laughs) That's a fair point. We need self-destructing pop hits. All right. Well, if that's the case, maybe it's time to move on from, from the consensus or lack of consensus hits and find our own wonderful excavations in the big playlist all right well before we dig into the strut before we strut let's uh, take care of business okay first up as part of future tense's ongoing my favorite movie series i will be hosting a screening of network on the day this podcast episode drops wednesday july 25th in washington dc so that is today if you were listening to this episode on release day the event will take place at 6 30 p.m at at Washington, D.C.'s Landmark Theaters, E Street Cinema at 555 11th Street Northwest. The event is free and open to the public. You can RSVP for yourself and up to one guest. To sign up, go to slate.com slash live. In Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about a song or two or 20 that didn't make it into the regular Summer Strut segment. We had an embarrassment of riches this year. To hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash cultureplus. Plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, strut. All right, should we strut? Let's strut. First of all, I want to say there were many old friends on here that maybe for the purposes of this show don't bear re-listening to, but they were great to just LCD sound systems, some old new pornographers, Toots and the Maytals, Astrid Gilberto. Mm-hmm. I love Puss in Boots by the New York Dolls. It was great to hear it again. King mm-hmm. Curtis. There was some deep cut Liz Fair from her pop phase makes me think that I've totally neglected how good those records were. Foster the People, I loved it all. All right, here's something I'd never heard of before. Metronomy. The song is called The Look. So it's, I, I noticed that a lot of what I liked this year was kind of lo-fi bedroom electronica with kind of an end times melancholy to it. And mm-hmm. so there was a song by, Ye, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, Yeji, Y-A-E-J-I. She of Flushing Queens, Korea, and Carnegie Mellon University, apparently. So the name of the song is Rain Girl by Yeji. Make it rain, 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 make it rain
That is not a song that I would expect Steve Metcalf to like. <laughs> Me neither. It's, it's got a kind of a Peaches vibe. I like it. I love the thump of that one. It's a cry for help from my midlife crisis self, believe me. But I did love a lot of the electronica stuff. All right, Dana, recenter us. Recenter us. Give us some vintage Portuguese something. <laughs> okay, I actually do have one of those. I wasn't going to start with it, but since you asked, it's, I don't think it's vintage, though. I think this is relatively new. It's, people, of course, are pandering to me by sending Brazilian music, knowing that that's one of my, my favorite genres. And there's a beautiful, beautiful song by Seu Jorge, mm. who is probably known to most Americans by his uh, his cameo in the Wes Anderson movie, um, what was it called? Aquatic. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, yep. um, in which he plays this this sailor on the boat who's always popping out his guitar to sing um, beautiful bossa nova hits. So he has this beautiful song called Amiga da Minha Mulher, which means the, the friend of my wife. And uh, this is a great song, whether you understand the lyrics or not, but it's fun to know that what he's singing about is a guy whose friend, whose wife's friend is flirting with him and he doesn't know what to do about it. And there's verses about what the mother-in-law thinks and what the brother-in-law thinks and <laughs> what's going to happen. And if she was ugly, it would be okay. But I'm, I'm, I can't take it because she's beautiful. It's, and it's just a gorgeous song. Ela é amiga da minha mulher Pois é, pois é Mas vive dando em cima de mim Enfim, enfim Ainda por cima é uma tremenda gata Pra piorar minha situação you may have listened to more Seu George than me, but like I feel like that's closer to what he will normally sound like with that kind of tempo, right? Because the way he became famous for Americans was doing these quiet acoustic Bowie covers. Right. In the, in oh, that's Zissou. right. They were Bowie covers. And they yeah, were yeah. very gentle, beautiful. I mean, I, th- I think his version of Rebel Rebel is one of my favorites. All right, Chris, hit us. If we're in a broadly Latin vibe, um, I would love to talk about Manu Chao. I would love to thank whoever put um, Me Gustas Tu. I have gotten into debates with Manu Chao fans, um, but generally regarded as his breakthrough album is an album from 2001, I believe, called Proxima Estación Esperanza. Um, And Me Gustas Tu is is from that album. And uh, it's this wonderful lilting record from a guy who is kind of the king of alt latin music and and he's hard to place because he his parents are basque but he was born in france and he's he's very pan global so he's kind of everything and nothing in latin music and uh, i i really love migustas too There's something very lilting about that record, and and it's the the record ranges more widely than that sound. But there was a period I felt like in the early 2000s, especially in New York City, where that that record was sort of echoing out of restaurants and cafes and even the occasional car. And uh, anyway, that made me oddly nostalgic for I guess 15 years ago. Yeah, Manu Chao is the sound of college, but in a great way, and that is a very very strutty song. One song that's not in a foreign language, but that I want to flag for the list this year uh, is is a song called Favorite Song by Sincane, who's a Sudanese-American artist and who actually had a song on last year's list called Uh-huh that's become one of my favorite listens. I don't think we mentioned it on last year's show, but it's been in regular rotation for me, so I've been listening to this artist for a while. But let's listen to Favorite Song. Something I want, I'm looking for in the list when I'm trying to pick the ones that that pop for me are the songs that feel like they're blending influences in some way or building a sound that feels somewhat new. So I love that Sejorge, and I guess I never knew how to pronounce his name, and I love that Manu Chao, but they both feel like those are established flavors of music that I know are in a faucet somewhere. Like I could turn on Manu Chao whenever I want. I could turn on Sergio Jorge whenever I want. And I've really liked discovering this artist in Kane over the last couple of years, just because that the mix of influences in that song felt fresh to me in a way that I found exciting. All right, Steve, your turn. Okay. So I'm going to go back on brand here. Um, the least strutty song on the list that I loved was by someone named Andy Shauf, maybe, S-H-A-U-F. 
Any takers? Anyone know Andy Schauf? What was the song called? Quite Like You. I mean, you're right. It is more on brand for Steve, but it's also it, it's definitely also a hammock song. Uh, I would say that that fits uh, the hammock vibe that Dana was just talking about. Steve, can I read you Andy Schauf's bio, which I just looked up while we were listening? It's, it's so Metcalfian that I think you just have to hear it. Singer-songwriter Andy Schauf's dark, rustic tales of the Canadian prairie blend folk with sophisticated pop, reflecting his upbringing in Regina, Saskatchewan. And he played, this is actually awesome, he became interested in music as a teenager, teaching himself guitar, drums, piano, and any other instruments he came across. And so he wrote and recorded his first songs in his parents' basement. He's kind of the Canadian emo Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber is Canadian, Dana. <laughs> oh wait, okay. He's a <laughs> he's a different Canadian, Justin Bieber. He's the darker. He's the folkier, indier, Metcalfianier, Justin Bieber. There you go. Uh, all right, Tales from the Prairie. Love it. All right. Well, I think it's back around to me. So maybe I'll go with the uh, the first song I was going to mention before Julia custom ordered something Brazilian, which was what I found to be the putting on your mascara song of this year's list. Another category we came up with, Julia, last year. The song, I mean, to me, one of the prototypical getting ready to go out glam songs would be something like Bad Romance, Lady Gaga's Bad Romance, right? Mm -hmm. Something that makes you feel like I'm going to just go out and break some hearts and tear things apart, (laughs) right? But I'm not doing it yet. I'm just kind of curling my eyelashes. Yeah. Um, And also the the Lizzo song, Good as Hell. That was another of our our mascara faves. So my mascara song on this mix was Know Your Name by Mary Lambert. Did you all come across this one and enjoy it? Like that one too, yeah. It's kind of like a love song to a putative future partner whose name is not known yet. And uh, and it also is in this very straightforward and completely not dramatized way, a lesbian love song, because it starts off yep. with a woman addressing a lady whose name she doesn't know. All right, so that uh, we've we've hit the s- sweet spot of the Venn diagram. That was on my list, and my note for it was speaks to my inner Jody Rosen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have a kind of goofy one that I, they again had that sort of freshness of mashed up sound that I was vibing to this year, which is called UFO by Stella Cole, but Y O U F O. I love I loved that. I really love that. It's odd that I would like a song where the person where one of the lyrical jokes is that the person doesn't say the word fuck, but something about the like aggression plus retro 60s plus goofy attitude of that song made it feel like a mascara song to me. Oh yeah, and the production is super clean and fun. Just a lot of neat sounds jumbled together. It's got a lounge bit, it's got some rap beats that are quite modern. It's got some maximalist pop. Um, it's loping, it's swaggering, it's very oddly catchy. Yeah, I like that record and I don't. I kind of don't know what box to put it in, but it's definitely a mascara jam. <laughs> yeah, made my list. Stella 1L, Cole. Can I maybe, okay, I don't know if this counts as a mascara jam, but can I ta- talk about the record that made me turn my head when I had the playlist playing in the background and for about three or four songs I wasn't play- paying attention and then as I was telling Dana before we started taping, this one made me snap my head around and say, wait, is that who I think it is? And it's Dusty Springfield, except it's not Dusty Springfield from like Dusty in Memphis in 1968. It's Dusty Springfield's That's the Kind of Love I've Got for You from 1977. And it is basically a disco record. Check 
I just I love that this exists. I mean, you know, you forget. I mean, okay, look. When I think of Dusty Springfield, I think of two periods, neither of which are the 70s. I think of the 60s, obviously her peak, you know, Son of a Preacher Man, Dusty in Memphis is literally one of my all-time favorite albums. Then I think of her comeback in the late 80s with the Pet Shop Boys on What Have I Done to Deserve This, which was an enormous hit. But like the 70s in theory are kind of a wilderness period for Dusty Springfield. And yet that's a very on-trend you know, current to 77 disco record with, you know, the ride symbol and just all the hallmarks of it. And I wouldn't say it's the greatest disco record I've ever heard, but the fact that it, it works as well as it does kind of impressed me. And it, it really made me turn my head and say, wow, that really is a Dusty Springfield disco record. Disco is tough for me. I think of disco as being like an indoor genre. Like it doesn't, I like some disco songs. It's fun to hear people in the disco mode sometimes, but like you're already... There's no psych up. There's no emotional quality to it. Like you're in the club. You're already drunk. You're just dancing. Like the, I, I don't. I. I. Uh-oh. Dana <laughs> is raising a finger of dissent. I mean, I have so many songs to contradict that. Although I think that that criticism might be made of you know some mass of music that's called disco. But I feel like some of the most I don't know what you'd call them, but ecstatic and pop anthems that exist are, are disco songs. And there's one on this on this list. I think this would be called disco. But that song, "You Make Me Feel Mighty Real," that's oh, yeah. that's disco, oh, right? That is Somebody put that peak, on this list. Who disco. sings that now? Sylvester, Sylvester, uh, God, the man who is so far ahead of his time—a transgender artist singing in falsetto. You know, when I was a kid, I remember getting this song mixed up. I would there was this song would flow in my mind in and out with Donna Summers to be real, right? Because they both have the falsetto sound and they're disco songs and they're about being real. <laughs> and uh, and I love them both. I think they both kind of counter Julia's argument about disco being, you know, some emotionless club robot dance. I feel like they're both such kind of anthems of subjectivity. And, and I'm not saying emotionless. I'm just saying it's an it's a different set of emotions to me than the the strut psych up it's more like you say it's more ecstatic and and lost in a moment a different kind of moment but strut to each his or her own (laughs) strut so i have a mascara song i wouldn't say that this would have entered into the discussion otherwise but i like the mascara jam as a, a genre i liked this weird 80s half kitsch, half sincere throwback to sort of that part of Springsteen that overlapped with Brian Adams, uh, a band called Twin Shadow and their song Saturdays. Yeah, that one's good. Just, that one's really good. I missed Big that one. On that one, yeah, that's a good one. It's the sound of me making muscles in front of the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, tell me the artist and title again. I want to search for that one in my playlist. So the lead artist is Twin Shadow, and Twin Shadow is um, uh, L.A.-based singer-songwriter. Um, you know, I I can't claim to know chapter and verse about Twin Shadow, but he's been around for a while, and. You know, I'm not sure he's always quite that 80s. That guitar strum that comes in Mm. at the first verse, that's the moment where you go, oh, my God, are they trying to create a Corey Hart record from like 1985? Yeah, very Corey Hart. Totally agree. One thing that we should absolutely mention is that if there were one artist who came up most often on the playlist, you can see this if you reorganize the the playlist uh, by artist. Uh, It's Janelle Monae, who put out uh, a tremendously acclaimed album this year called Dirty Computer, uh, which is one of the two or three most acclaimed albums of 2018 so far. I frankly wish, I think a lot of people thought when uh, Make Me Feel, which is her, you know, 
very obvious Prince homage, which Prince himself, before he died, may well have had a hand in in creating. Um, I kind of wish it had been a bigger hit. I, I think everybody thought the minute they heard it, oh, this is going to be the one that gives Janelle Monet like a number one hit. It didn't even reach the top 40, but there was a moment in the late winter, early spring where it felt like that record was sort of on everybody's lips. And um, there are at least, gosh, four tracks from Dirty Computer, the album, on this playlist. Um including Make Me Feel and Pink, which was the second single. I, I suppose we should just play Make Me Feel because it's such a darn good record. I think, you know, as per our earlier conversation about Song of the Summer, I think the problem with a record like that is it sounds to everybody like a hit, but it's not a hit from now, right? It sounds nothing like Drake. It sounds nothing like Cardi B. It sounds nothing like even Maroon 5. Thank you. Um, So it wasn't necessarily a radio hit, but it's such a terrific, solid, you know, beautifully uh, composed record. I definitely love Make Me Feel. It's definitely my favorite of the Janelle Monae songs that were submitted to the Strut list. I endorsed Make Me Feel three or four months ago when I first heard it. It was it was one of my endorsements on the show. It It is the should-be song of summer to me. It reminds me of Slide, the song by Calvin Harris featuring Frank Ocean and Migos that I endorsed as part of Strut last summer, which is just like, this is the sound. This is the sound that should be the sound in my, in my narrow view. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love this song. And I think the other songs in the album are really good, and I want to spend more time with the whole album. I wonder if we should take a brief sidebar into uh, Janelle Monet's attempt at a patriotic anti-Trump anthem, which in my view is a total failure, but kind of a hilarious of the moment one. Should we listen to, what's it called? Americans? Americans, yeah. Should we listen briefly to Americans and just, uh, to me, Americans is the attempt at doing Impeach the President, which is the great retro Honey Dipper song that we excavated thanks to some lovely listener last summer, which I still listen to on rotation, but Americans is no Impeach the President. like a bit of a like Madonna justify my love gospel I, it, I wanted to like it yeah there weren't enough of the lyrics in that clip to tell how anvil over the head this is <laughs> but it, it is that kind of song in fact I was listening to this and on a on a car ride with my partner trying to cram in as many summer struts and that was where he called called stop he just said <laughs> This, he had no idea who Janelle Monae was. He doesn't really listen to any music post-1993. <laughs> but as soon as she started going off on politics, he he couldn't handle it anymore. Can I shout out my favorite Janelle Monae song that was submitted, which is not from Dirty Computer? It's a few years old, uh, probably from an album from five years ago or so. What an experience. Oh, yeah, that's from The Beautiful Electric Lady, song. which was it's her prior album. It's so romantic. Album. Yeah. I absolutely loved What an Experience. To me, that was the, the slow dance song. I feel like if I was in eighth grade and I had a crush on someone, I would want to slow dance to this song. All right, my next suggestion is just the one that got its hooks into me. I don't have a theory or a case or a subgenre, but I want to play Tilted by Christine and the Queens. Oh, that was going to be my next one. I matched them with my euphoria. When they said you should prefer Kutua. But I'm actually good. Can't help it if we're tilted. I am actually My understanding is that that was from her English language debut, which is why she's flitting back and forth between languages. Um, and I, I loved the English language hook on that, actually. I am actually mm-hmm. good. I, I liked the use of actually on that. Um, 
it's almost this wonderful understatement. No, I'm actually good. <laughs> yeah, no, it has a little bit of aggression to it, even though the song is is deceptively mellow at and first gentle. listen. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a great cut. I mean, you know, I get to add the Gray Boy All Stars, the cut How Glad I Am. Some it's an acid jazz acid jazz tip. I love it. Somehow your it's list got a great chorus. Entirely ones I picked and ones I dismissed. Like you have none of the songs. Like you, fi- you're finding all these gems that I totally did that didn't even make my short list. That's that song is awesome. I love it. We've achieved intersectionality. I, this is great. <laughs> I don't think that's what intersectionality is. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> For the purposes of this podcast, it is, my friend. <sighs> Okay, here's here's a song that popped out for me from a band I know nothing about, although I've heard their name floating around. Chris, you can tell me more about the band, but it's the Dirty Projectors, and the song is Breakthrough. Unimpressed, Archimedes, Palimpsest, just hanging out, all Julian Casablanca. I mean, they had me at Palimpsest, but, <laughs> but I know nothing about the band. Tell me, who are the Dirty Projectors? The Dirty Projectors is largely a dude. That dude is David Longstreth. And depending on who you're talking to, he is not the king, but a king of Brooklyn indie. He is like, if we were having this conversation in 2009, he's like, you know, echt Brooklyn indie when that sound was, you know, whether it was Grizzly Bear or, you know, Animal Collective. He Vampire was, Weekend? Are they at all I guess, that? yes. Vampire, they sound a bit like Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, right, they're Manhattan, but still. They're Manhattan, exactly. But but Vampire Weekend are often grafted onto end of aughts Brooklyn indie. And Dave Longstreth is kind of at the center of a lot of that. But he's an interesting songwriter. Um, that's from his latest album, which I think just came out a couple of months ago. Um, but he he's interesting because he brings in weird pop elements uh for example the song he's probably best or they dirty projectors they were more like a group 10 years ago because he had uh two female vocalists including a well-known um woman amber kaufman singing with him and i'm I'm forgetting the other uh vocalist name but they and many of the records uh had female fronted vocals and the one he's best known for is called stillness is the move which was I guess you could call it an indie hit, even though it wasn't like a top 40 hit or anything like that. It was covered by The Roots. It, it, it almost sounds like an R&B record if it was written by a bunch of white hipsters from Williamsburg. And that makes it sound like the worst record ever. And in fact, it's, it's one of the greatest records of the last 10 years. It's, it's really, truly amazing. I mean, that record, uh, Stillness is the Move, had enough cred in R&B and hip-hop circles that, like, a few years later, Longstreth actually co-wrote a song with Kanye West. That strange three-person Kanye West-Rihanna-Paul McCartney record, um, Four or Five Seconds, this kind of loopy thing that he's doing that you're keying into on the new record, that's kind of his stock and trade. I was also happy to have an excuse to figure out what the Dirty Projectors were all about from this playlist, because I kind of skipped them, too. So thank you for that primer. Hope that was helpful. What's your next song? So we talked briefly about um, Janelle's perhaps failed attempt to be woke. I feel like a few people um, tried to sneak in sort of uh, woke tracks. Um, Two, I'll just couple them together briefly. Uh, One is, speaking of uh, indie rock, Parquet Courts. Who, I loved this song. This Parquet, is going to be my next song. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry to steal it from you. If you if you want to talk about it some more, um, but briefly, Parquet Courts are kind of like they're my favorite. Let me just put this out there: they're my favorite 2010s indie rock act. When I talk about what is going to save indie rock, which got so tired by the end of the 2010s and, or excuse me, the 2000s, and you know it's no longer as omnipresent as it was five to ten years ago. I feel like Parquet Courts are the great saviors of of indie rock of this decade. Uh, their new album is produced by Danger Mouse. Speaking of people who have sudden in, I don't know, you could call it hip-hop cred because Danger Mouse has now done so many different things you can't even call him a hip-hop producer anymore. Um, and he's basically like 
trying to make them danceable. They invited him in to kind of screw with their sound intentionally. And the song is called Wide Awake. And I'm just going to quote the lyric because I actually wrote them down. Mind so woke because my brain never pushed the brakes. Eyes so open that my vision is as sharp as a blade. And I guess that's their loopy way of saying like, you know, we're, we're the new woke parquet courts. Yeah, that was going to be my next song. I, that song is like a uh, at-the-party party jam. I, it's interesting. The Wide Awake, I wondered in listening to it whether it was to be read politically or just like, I am up for whatever, and I kind of like the double entendre there. I think it's both, yeah. I feel like being politically awake doesn't necessarily put you in the kind of party mood that that song sounds like, so there's a little dissonance there, but I think it's a productive dissonance. Um, all right. Since you took Wide Awake... I would like to hereby state that in addition to having never bothered to figure out what Dirty Projectors was all about, I also thought I knew what Selena Gomez was all about Hmm. and like figured she was a post-Disney pop princess who probably made songs that if I bothered to listen to them, I would like them, but they would sound exactly like what I would think they would sound like, a little bit like the Maroon 5 we listened to at the top. I would like us all to listen to Bad Liar by Selena Gomez, (laughs) which surprised me. It's taking the perfection of my Okay, so first of all, lyrically, that's good. Yeah. Like, that's not what I think Top 40 post-Disney pop is supposed to sound like. Consider mm-hmm. me an amenity. That's like a great fucking line. Second of all, the phrasing and delivery there are sophisticated and fun and sort of like throwback Ani DeFranco, which I didn't think that was where the top of the pops was going. Can anyone on the line identify the baseline of that record? It is a sample and it should sound familiar to you. The doom, 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 doom. Isn't that just a bass? <laughs> no, but it's a very specific, actually fairly famous. I cannot. Well, wait, wait, play it again. Play it again. The, play the very beginning of the record. It's Psycho Killer. That is exactly correct. It is Psycho Killer Ooh. by the Talking Heads. Nice. Very good, Steve. So that's like a sample that's used cleverly. And, Very cleverly. And imperceptibly, as opposed to just like, here's the hook from that Lauren Hill song. Remember how you liked it 20 years ago? It's still good. <laughs> this was one of my very favorite records of 2017. This was a hit last summer. It reached the Oops. top 20 last summer. No, it's okay. Julia. I'm glad. No, I'm glad you found it organically on the mix. Um I adore this record. Uh, I think I ranked it in my top three when we did Sleep Music Club at the end of the year. Love, love, love this record. Okay, before I relinquish the floor, I don't have another sound bite to play, but I do have a question. Did anyone else start wagging their tail the instant they started hearing New York Groove by Ace Freely? Oh my God. I mean, can we just... <laughs> can we just make that like the pantheon patron saint of this playlist. I mean, oh the other God. contender for that, which is actually a song that I don't know, is there is actually a song called Strut by Sheena Easton, which made it onto this. But I'm sorry, with apologies to Sheena Easton, the song that should be called Strut is back in the New York groove, which is the all-time greatest strutting through New York song that has ever or could ever be written, I think. Should we, should we hear the top of that? Melanthi, I was I was alive when that thing came out, and as was I. It, it was no one knew. I don't think anyone knew how to categorize it. Therefore, process it like a solo, you know, effort from a member of Kiss mm-hmm. that had this. A band who did an album it. called Strutter, by the way, for whatever that's worth. But go on. And it just it kind of slid right by everyone, even though deep down we all knew how fucking awesome it was, and I love that its afterlife has. Uh, you know, just put it in everyone's uh, unconscious. You're right about Afterlife. Um, it was a top 30 hit, I believe, back in 78. Uh, Kiss were so popular in 1978 that the four members of Kiss, 
Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, Ace Frehley, and Peter Chris each released a solo album as a kind of, you know, flood the market move. And I'm not sure that anybody expected, A, that any of those four solo albums would generate a top 40 hit, or B, that it would be the guitarist, Ace Frehley, a guy who doesn't normally sing. But New York Groove was... The fact that it was a hit at all in 78 was already remarkable. The afterlife that record has had. I mean, yeah, it's become sort of an absolute, you know, strutting New York classic. I, you know, it, that and showed up in a lot of movie soundtracks. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I feel like I hear that to sort of set the scene of hot summery New York in, in movies all the time. Um, if we're going to close out with uh, old songs, um, there are many that I loved on here. There was a meter's track. Uh, there was a Carly Simon track from the early 80s, l- lesser known Nile Rogers production called uh, Why, which I absolutely love. But um, the one I'll focus on, because it had been a while since I listened to it out of context, and it was an enormous, enormous hit. But it's funny that somebody chose this one out of all of her hits. It's a Janet Jackson record called Love Will Never Do Without You. It is the last of the seven singles, seven, that were released from her 1989 album, uh, Rhythm Nation, 1814, that record spun off so many hits that this last one didn't go to number one until 1991, two years after the album came out. And it's my favorite of all the number one hits from that record. And what's interesting is that uh, this is probably an accident, but the fact that we put in the album cut into the mix, if you've heard Love Will Never Do Without You on the radio, it's usually trimmed down to a you know a tight three minutes and change but the full-length version on the album has this kind of build to it and it's it's very strutty and and very um it's got that bright sheeny shiny jimmy jam terry lewis production sound of the turn of the 90s and i don't know i just i forgot how much i loved this record Has an album ever had as distinctive production as Rhythm Nation? Like, I feel like you yeah. could call a song from that album anywhere. Like, you could find it in the Antarctic in a penguin suit, and you'd be like, oh, you're a song from Janet Jackson's 1989 classic album, Rhythm Nation. Yeah, and very briefly... Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis would go through little phases and sounds that they liked. They had the sound in the mid 80s that I call their wet sound, where it sounded like there were like raindrops falling and they used it on like a bunch of different records like Human by the Human League and the Force MD's Tender Love. This sound, the sound of Rhythm Nation, it's got this almost auto, you know, automatic uh, machine tooled sound. It's very clattery. It almost sounds like you're in the middle of an engine with pistons firing and whirring and they use it across the whole album and it kind of unifies all these tracks and you're absolutely right it's it's a very unified production sound all right well i think that that's a wrap for our 2018 uh, strut colloquy here um chris malamphy you're going to stick around and endorse i take it yes i'd be happy to steve thanks superb we should let you know that we are going to post uh the list of songs both the long list of you know kind of everything that was suggested by our listenership and then the shorter list of the songs that we called out on the show All right, let's endorse. Uh, Dana, what do you have? Well, since Summer Strut Week is all about the the porous relationship between us and listeners and all the things that they give us, um, in I, I hope in exchange for things that we give them, that is what my endorsement is going to have to do with. I've been saving up this endorsement for a while, trying to figure out what, what week it would fit in. And of course, Summer Strut Week is perfect because this endorsement is a piece of music that I found because of a listener. And uh, and so I want to thank that listener and, uh, and introduce everyone to the music. So um, the movie Tree of Life the Terrence Malick movie has a wonderful soundtrack. It's a mix of Alexandre Desplat's original score and a lot of classical music pulled from here and there. Uh, I've always loved that score and I love that movie. We've talked about it on the show. I remember Julia and Steve, I think, were objectors. No, I to never the movie. saw it. I think I was on maternity leave. Oh, really? Whoever I talked about it with on the show, nobody liked it except for me, or at least nobody loved it. Um, but there's one particular little scrap of classical music of, that appears as a piano solo in one scene of Tree of Life that I've always wanted to track down and not been able to figure out what it was. Because, of course, when you look at you know the listings for a movie's 
music that doesn't say what scene a particular piece goes with. And uh, if you've seen Tree of Life, there's this one beautiful traveling shot that goes through a playground. And the little boy, who's one of the protagonists of the movie, is doing a voiceover. And you hear this gorgeous piano music in the background as as we're moving through this um, this playground at sort of the golden hour of sunset. And I always thought that that was Bach, that piece, because it seemed like, well, it's Baroque and I love it. And it, it's, it feels very sort of cosmic. It's got to be Bach. But I couldn't figure out. And there is some Bach on that soundtrack, but I couldn't figure out what piece it was. And uh, when I heard that Tree of Life was coming out in on Criterion, which I think it maybe already has now or it is very soon, I tweeted about this and said, oh, I hope that I can figure out through the extras maybe someday what the music is that plays under the playground scene in Tree of Life. So, of course, to the rescue came a wonderful Twitter follower and I assume listener to the podcast maybe uh, who just goes by Nathan on Twitter. So thank you, Nathan. And he knew exactly what the piece was and uh, and what version was used in the film. And so I bought the album and now I listen to it all the time. And it's not Bach. It's my other Baroque favorite, Francois Couperin, who I've talked about, I'm sure, and, and endorsed on the show before. It's one of the pieces from his series of um, keyboard pieces called Pièces de Clavecin, keyboard pieces. And as it turns out, this particular one, this little fragment um, that's called Les Barricades Mystérieuses, the Mysterious Barricades, is a really popular piece of Couperin music. Like if you go to iTunes and, and look at the various versions of this album that have been recorded by different kinds of keyboardists, that's always the most downloaded track. It's sort of like, It was you the know, Couperin strut. It was, yeah, it was the song of the summer in, you know, <laughs> whatever, 1640 or something. I'm sure I got that year wrong. Um, 1700s. I mean, given what we've just done, I was waiting for the four on the floor to kick in, you know. <laughs> It would work. The reggaeton version. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my whole endorsement. It's the whole thing. It's it's Tree of Life, the playground scene, then go listen to the Angela Hewitt version of Les Barricades Mysterieuses by Francois Couperin. And, uh, and then you can also go down a great rabbit hole looking at different versions of it. Different people on Twitter started sending me their own versions or playing it on harpsichord or all kinds of other things. But, uh, but it's absolutely gorgeous. And it's one of those pieces of music because it has this sort of wheel-like quality that it turns on itself that once you get it in your head, you'll go around just being uplifted by it for days. So thank you, Nathan. I love it. Julia, what do you have? Uh, I've got two musically related endorsements. I'm basically just sneakily extending the strut because there were three or four more songs that I would have happily discussed. <laughs> um, the first, though, is not a strut song. The wonderful composer Nicholas Brutel, who wrote our new theme song and came on a couple segments talking about that process and how scores and themes work and how, how composers work, uh, has gone on to do many, many things in Hollywood and music, write the Moonlight score, write the score for the big short. And now he's written the score for Succession, the new HBO show, which I should stipulate my husband doesn't work on and has nothing to do with, um, and which I actually haven't seen. But from what I've heard, people keep texting me and saying, oh, the score for Succession is so good that the opener, the opening riff to Succession is so great. Uh, and in fact, The Ringer did a, basically an entire article to that effect called How Nicholas Patel Became the Sound of Money in Hollywood. So if you'd like to learn more about uh, our theme song composer, Nick Patel, I would recommend this article, which uh, gives a nice recap of his career and also includes links to that theme song, which sounds pretty good. My second endorsement is one last song from Strut, I Can't Resist, and a pairing Slate article. The, the song I would like to endorse is called You Get a Love Song by Lori McKenna, which is just a sort of more classic sounding country song, not the kind of Casey Musgraves, Taylor Swift, Marin Morris country pop that we were talking about earlier in the show. It sounds like a proper you're driving through a state and listening to the country music radio country song, um, but has a really beautiful tartness to it and sweetness to the love story and uh friend of the program, I forget what his superlative is, but something friend of the program, SVOP, uh, Carl Wilson, wrote a piece about Laurie McKenna, who has been a songwriting powerhouse in country for the last while and now has this album of herself singing her songs that is uh, acclaimed by him and this song mm. now by me. Well, they ain't gonna make a movie about a couple of fools like us. No one's gonna 
picture on the local front page Falling in love, it'll read the sage No, no Saying I do when you're 19 In a hand-me-down dress with a punch I love that song, but I'm still going to need to forward this to the rules committee. (laughs) It's not strutty, so that's why it's an endorsement and not a strut. Olympi, I've just made you the rules committee. What do you say? I'm going to allow it uh, because Laurie McKenna. uh, So, yeah, thumbs up. It's really an album endorsement more than just a song endorsement, so I'll I'll allow it. Fair enough. All right, Malamphy, what do you got? I'm such a soft touch. Um, I'm going to go off model, and despite being you know, the music guest, uh, I'm going to talk about a movie, and I'm going to piggyback off of a review written by none other than Dana Stevens, in which she says, and I quote, The funny, heartfelt, and utterly original Eighth Grade is a movie about middle school starring real middle school-age kids to which one might enjoyably take actual middle schoolers, so long as they and their parents are willing to tolerate a reasonably high degree of shared comic embarrassment, unquote. Uh, I did exactly this uh, this past weekend. Um, little personal background. I am uh, marrying into parenthood in my 40s. Uh, my fiance has two children, uh, one age 13, the other age 11. The 13-year-old literally just graduated uh, eighth grade, uh, is on her way to high school. Uh, her name is Anna. And um, we took the kids this past Sunday to... Sunday, Saturday, I forget, Saturday, I think, to their first uh, ever rated R movie, because eighth grade is a rated R movie. Uh, And um, we did it partially at the behest of Slate. Slate is actually uh, collecting uh, reviews for a forthcoming feature of actual eighth graders or thereabouts reviewing eighth grade. And uh, we took Anna to see this movie, and uh, it was both every bit as wonderful and every bit as cringy as... uh, (laughs) as uh, I thought it might be. And uh, it was, uh, there were so many moments that you you can't foresee when even no matter how many reviews you read, parenting guides, there's a scene where she, I won't spoil it, um, the protagonist Googles um, a sexual term where uh, the 11-year-old actually got up and said, now's the moment I should go to the bathroom. Uh, the moment I got up to go to the bathroom was when I observed the uh, nerdy boy who is basically Chris at age 13 showing off his you know obsession with chicken nuggets. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is hitting way too close to home. And the, and the, the, the kids were all laughing and pointing at me because my fiance Liz leaned over and said, that's totally Chris. When he was um, <laughs> not that she knew me back then, but she was totally right. Um, so yeah, uh, I want to, I guess with, you know, some warnings or caveats endorse the experience of seeing eighth grade with an eighth grader. It is still a rated R movie, but you know, with guidance and a nice long talk afterward, it, it, uh, it's an amazing experience. So there I we go. love eighth grade. I'm so happy. I hope we talk about it on this show. I'm actually interviewing the director, the writer, director, Bo Burnham tomorrow night. And uh, I'm, I'm going to tell him about about the, the eighth grade experience. Very briefly, I should say that the screening we saw at the Alamo Draft House here in Brooklyn was a Q&A with the cast. So, uh, the you know, five of the teenage actors were all there and they're all amazing. So articulate, so poised. And one thing they pointed out, since you mentioned uh, Burnham, is that... Uh, it blew my mind that a guy who made his name on YouTube and is so internet savvy and, and w- so wonderfully in that movie gets the tone of modern social media correct. Um, they claim that going in, they had to clue him into the fact that teenagers don't use Facebook anymore. Apparently, Facebook played a larger role in the original script of the movie. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, Facebook shouldn't even be, like, mentioned. There's even a joke to that to that effect, right? One of the teenagers says, Mom, no one uses Facebook You anymore. guys are spoiling too much. I can't wait to see this movie. I don't want to hear anything mm. else about it. So anyway. I know. I'm going to take my rising 10th grader to it. Um, I'm going to endorse an essay that um, it, it was in the Blarb, the blog of the Los Angeles <laughs> Review of Books that was fantastic. Well known as the Blarb. <laughs> yeah, 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 I wish it were a joke, Julia. It's actually what it's called. Uh, but um, anyway, it's by a woman named Jacqueline Ardam, A-R-D-A-M. It's called Real Toads at the International Cryptozoology Museum. And she's a professor of poetry, adjunct professor of poetry at Colby College. She makes a big deal that she's an adjunct. I'm not trying to you know, uh, diminish her in any way. It's partially about that, but um, it it's it's the perfect essay of a certain kind of itself, sort of zoologically distinct kind, which is just weird hybridizing of semi mythic creatures into one kind of 
beautifully woven argument. So it's autobiographical, it's exegetical, it's analytical, it's melancholic, it's um, you know hard-headed and, and soft-hearted. I mean, it's just a, it is really, truly a wonderful essay. Um, so I recommend it in and of itself, but then she also brings us back to Marianne Moore deserves to be, for every human being who thrills to Emily Dickinson, there deserves to be one who thrills also and equivalently to Marianne Moore. I mean, the most underrated American poet in the canon, in my estimation. Um, can I get an amen, like anybody out there, a Marianne Moore? I love Marianne Moore. Yeah, I mean, just incredible, right? So the poem, The Fish, which is a classic of hers, it has these stanzas that I'd completely forgotten about, about the cliff face that goes into the sea beneath which are the animals that live around it. Um, And it goes like this. All external marks of abuse are present on this defiant edifice. All the physical features of accident, lack of cornice, dynamite grooves, burns and hatchet strokes. These things stand out on it. The chasm side is dead. Repeated evidence has proved that it can live on what cannot revive its youth. The sea grows old in it. I mean, words that are just as ancient sounding as the reality of the thing it's meant to be conjuring. It's just a perfect poetic gesture in the midst of a really beautiful essay. Um, So it's on the blarb. Um, and it's uh, Real Toads at the International Cryptozoology Museum by Jacqueline Ardam. Wonderful. Check it out. Chris, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Steve. That was fun. Uh, Dana, thank you. Many thanks, Stephen. Julia, a thrill. This was a good one. It was. I want to just respond with a beat rather than mere sad words. <laughs> Thump it out. I love it. You'll find links to the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culture fest at slate.com drop us a note at our facebook page that's facebook.com slash culture fest and we do a twitter feed it's at slate cult fest our producer is benjamin frisch our production assistant is alex barish for dana stevens julia turner and chris melanthi supreme friend of the program maybe sufop i'll take very it. first ever sufop uh i'm Stephen metcalf and we'll see you soon